Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the word of the Lord. To get a grasp of the text today, to get that Sitzenleben, its setting in life, one needs to remember when Thessalonica was first founded. It was in the fourth century before the Common Era. The big names of that century, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, warriors, Philip of Macedon and his son, Alexander the Great. Philip wanted so much that Alexander had the very best education he could possibly afford for him that Aristotle himself was private tutor and mentor to young Alexander. Thessalonica was named for one of the daughters of Philip of Macedon, a half-sister of Alexander. Same father, different mother. 316, Thessalonica was founded. 169 years later, the Romans marched on the city and conquered it. 37 years later, here they came with another of their magnificent Roman roads, this one all the way from Rome to ancient Byzantium, linking west to east, modern-day Istanbul. Centuries later, a railroad track would be put along that very roadbed, and it would carry the Orient Express from Rome and Paris all the way to modern-day Istanbul. Thessalonica was linked between those two great cities. Near Philippi, named for Philip of Macedon, just a little bit west, the city of Thessalonica. Paul arrived 180 years after that famed Roman road called the Via Ignatia. We believe that Paul's first letter to the third church at Thessalonica is the oldest writing we have in the Christian portion of the Bible. Much older than the four Gospels, 1 Thessalonians, we think, oldest Christian writing we have in the Bible. But those same scholars who believe so, believe that 2 Thessalonians may be the last, or certainly one of the last, of the writings we have in the Christian Bible, not written by Paul. Paul died in the mid-60s, we believe, along with Peter, during the persecutions of Caesar Nero. The conditions described in this letter, things that are going on there, are more like the persecutions under Domitian in the mid-90s. So probably 30 years after the death of Paul and Peter, and a good 65 to 70 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, this letter gets written. Which makes it all the more remarkable to me that the verbs in it are present tense verbs. Almost as if Pastor Chinuith who came in a covered wagon to found our church 116 years ago. Tall, straight, good-looking young man with a young wife and a baby in a, in a homemade crib that we still use for the baby Jesus every Christmas Eve. A little tiny wooden chair that we still down, have downstairs 116 years later. If he could write to us today and say, I'm so glad your faith is still growing. 
so glad your faith is still growing. Now, faith is a synonym of trust. Remember, this is about trusting that God loves you, knows your name, loves every other child of his ever created. One, no more than the other. One, no less than all the others. Every baby God loves and loves the same. Knows your name, cares what's happening to you, celebrates if something good is happening, grieves if something bad is happening to you. Monday through Friday mornings, I read the Tulsa World while I eat my breakfast. One of my favorite sections, the cartoons. I don't read them all, just a couple of them. Peanuts was my favorite until Charles Schultz died. I really look forward to reading Peanuts strip every day. And then Charles Schultz had decreed, no one will draw my strip when I die. And they re-ran some after his death, but finally those were gone. So I was disappointed. I started looking down that long page and finally decided there's really only one strip that I read every day. And that's Pickles. Do you read Pickles? Well, the guy that draws Pickles for the Washington Post understands people my age. He understands us. And he draws this strip about an older man and woman and all the times they say something to each other that he didn't mean, but she misunderstood and she says and he misunderstood and so on. But last week it was all about Halloween, of course. And... The grandpa is reading his morning paper, and in walks a grandchild. Now, this little fellow looks like he's three or four. He's got on a bathrobe of some sort and a fake beard, and he asks, Grandpa, you want to know who I'm going to be on Halloween? And grandpa lowers the paper just a little and asks, Who? And the little boy says, God. And grandpa says, The Almighty? Really, I always thought of him as being taller, he said. I always thought of God as being a little taller than this three or four year old. As we grow in faith, the Bible asks us to do two things. For our God to get bigger and bigger, for us to comprehend better and better what it means to worship one who oversees the whole universe. Not only billions of stars, but billions of galaxies of stars. That God is bigger than all of that. How can we do other than stand in awe of him, the Bible says, to stand in awe of God. But the same book tells us that God is as near as our own breathing. As near as our own breathing. And somehow our growing in faith is supposed to help us understand both of those things. Had a brother-in-law spent 36 years with NASA and every time we were around him he was telling us something new that NASA was doing. He was particularly excited about our landing on the moon. He was one of the engineers there when all of those landings took place. He was excited when Hubble telescope went up. We're hoping to see them down in Texas at Thanksgiving. And uh, when we walk into their house, most of the time he has NASA going on a big screen there uh, on their website and whatever they're doing he's still interested in he keeps up with what's going on with NASA God is big big and God is as close as our breathing 
I'm excited by all our astronomers are learning. And every night before I sleep, I talk to God, believing He's right there in the bedroom with me. Every night. Are you growing in faith? Growing in faith. Number two. I'm so glad, this author says, that you're still increasing in love. And here the word for love is definitely agape. I looked it up in my Greek text. It's not eros, where one is infatuated with a beautiful woman or a handsome guy. It's not even philios, where one fraternity brother likes a brother, one sister, sorority girl likes a, a sister. One who roots for a football team likes all those who root for the same team dislikes the rest of the world. You understand. No, agape, we need to be reminded, is a decision we make. That if I am loved by God, just because that's who God is, if God wants good to come to me because that's who God is, if he loves the one nearest me, my Negabur, the Germans call it, the Negabur, the one nearest me right at this moment loves that one as much as God loves me and wants good to come to that one as desperately as God wants good to come to me, then I'm somehow supposed to help make that happen. If it's within my power to help make that good thing happen for the other. In March, Horton Foote died. One of my favorite playwrights, Gail and I have seen a lot of plays since we've been married. Um, I had become interested in stage work when I was in junior high school. Um, I went out for one-act play and was chosen, and it was in competition, the interscholastic competition down in Texas, in the one-act plays in junior high. When I was in high school, uh, I entered the one-act play competition. I was in the a cappella choir, and so we did two Broadway musicals, one my junior year, one my senior. I was in Brigadoon, I was in King and I. Uh, I had the lead role in my senior play. I've always loved drama. I'm, I'm not a severe critic. I appreciate anyone who gets on the stage and does his or her best. Uh, we've been season ticket holders to Theater Tulsa all these years, the American Theater Company, the Broadway series that comes to Tulsa, uh, opera as well. So these dramas, we ballet, we season ticket holders to the Tulsa Ballet. We saw Dracula on Friday night. So we've seen a lot of those kinds of dramas. Horton Foote was one of my favorites because his dialogue was always believable. He was born in Wharton, Texas. Wharton, Texas. First time I ever heard the name Wharton, Texas was when the junior college in my hometown played Wharton County Junior College in football. When I was a little bitty boy, when the bishop sent me to Houston after all my graduate work was completed, I discovered Wharton was just 60 miles farther south from Houston. And a few years later, I was invited to preach a series of services in, in Wharton. It was in the summertime, and so I took Trey and Jason with me to Wharton. And we enjoyed being there. Got to stay in a motel and swim in the pool when I wasn't having to preach and so on. Wharton, Texas. Horton Foote died in March in his 93rd year. When he was 16 years old, it was 1933. The very depths of the Great Depression, he wanted to be an actor. And he got on a train and went all the way to California. Couldn't make it as an actor. 
decided instead to be a writer and wrote more than 60 plays. He won two Academy Awards. He wrote the screenplay for To Kill a Mockingbird and he wrote the screenplay for Tender Mercies. He wrote that play as well. He wrote uh, A Trip to Bountiful, many, many others, more than 60 of them. He said that even when he was a little boy, he listened that his parents never asked him to leave the room when they were talking about things that were going on in Wharton, Texas. So he said, I knew the best things that were happening to people. I knew the worst things that were happening to people. I heard my mother and father, I heard my grandparents talking about what was going on. If I could teach a course, he said, in drama and literature, I would teach people to listen. Spencer Tracy said the greatest way to be an actor is to learn how to listen. Listen to what the other person says. You'll know far better how to say your next line. Listen. Horton Foote did that well. If you go to see Tender Mercies ever rent that old movie, you'll know how people talk in Texas. He got it. He has it exactly right. But in all of his writings, Horton Foote wrote about home and family. He lived the last years of his life in the very house where he was born in Wharton, Texas. After all of his fame and fortune, he went right back to his hometown and lived out his life there. Home and family. And when he writes, you can tell that he's a person of faith. In interviews, when asked, he would say that he believed whatever success he'd ever had was a gift of God. Whatever talent he might have had was a blessed gift of God. And he wrote about home in a way that you also sense, particularly in plays like A Trip to Bountiful, that he's talking about an eternal home as well. But I want you to hear this line. I know how difficult it is to get along in families, he said. But I also know that when people do not try hard in families, they atrophy. Their souls atrophy. Home is important. Heavenly home. Heavenly home even more. You're increasing in your agape, he said. I'm so glad you're increasing in your agape. Number three. You are enduring the present afflictions so wonderfully well. I admire your steadfastness. You are enduring. And that's a great word as well, is it not? Present tense. You are enduring. You have to remember that by the mid-90s of that first century of this common era, all Jews were back at the synagogue. Christianity had become a Gentile movement. And in all of these communities, I mean, talk of Thessalonica, uh, speak of Ephesus, uh, the seven cities to whom the revelation of John is addressed. In all these communities, the Christians were just a handful the far bigger majority were heathen and pagan. Their whole cultural life centered around their multiple gods and goddesses and all the festivals and the weekly, even daily sacrifices, the meats that were sacrificed to the false gods and then sold in the marketplaces. They're dealing with all of those kinds of things. And then Domitian, the Caesar Domitian, was making life difficult for them as well. You're hanging in there. You are steadfastly enduring. You are being the church in your time. When I see that Little League ball games are now played on Sunday morning, 
when I see the gymnastics tournaments are held on Sunday morning, when my little grandsons are asked to come and have their football pictures made on Sunday mornings, nobody's taking care of our Sabbath anymore. The Jews have lived with this for centuries, of course, and we're living with it now. Nobody's taking care of our Sunday morning anymore. It's more difficult than ever. Every week, we bury the World War II generation. The generation that believed church and Sunday school were every week. And we're replacing them with church members who think if they come once a month or once every six or seven weeks, they're active. It's hard to build a choir with folks who come once a month or once every six weeks. It's hard to build a Sunday school class with people who come once a month or once every six weeks. One of my good friends down in Houston, pastors one of the largest churches in Houston, said that last fall, members of his board started asking him, what's going on here? Our attendance is off. What are you doing? What are you not doing? What is our staff doing? What are they not doing? What's going on here? And he said, I gave him the best answer I could, but I called in the membership secretary and said, I want you to pay very close attention to the worship attendance of the administrative board members the next three months. And at the first meeting of the new year, he was, he was up here at the Ambassador Hotel meeting with other pastors of our bigger churches in January just last year, and he told us that at the board meeting at the end of that three months, he looked out at his administrative board and said, I want to tell all of you that your average attendance at worship the last three months has been one Sunday out of three. You've gone to the ball game, you've gone to the state fair, you've gone to the Oktoberfest, you've gone to the gymnastics tournament, you've taken your kid to play football, you've gone to a golf tournament. You weren't here. You want to know why our attendance is off? Because you weren't here. You come once a month. You come once every six weeks. So the afflictions we have, you see, are not always just somebody throwing us into prison. It's that there's so many distractions, so many other things that people can be doing. And I thank you, this author said, I thank God that you're enduring in your present afflictions. Remember C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters? In the screw tape letters, this devil writes in one of them, I hate silence and soft music. I love noise, he said. In hell we have lots of noise. Sarah Maitland is a modern-day Brit who decided to investigate how one's life would be changed if one experienced more silence. She spent more than a decade, more than ten years researching she went to the desert monasteries to see how the monks there live in silence. She went to convents and would spend a month or six weeks among the nuns, those who were being perfectly quiet. She found a property for rent in the highlands of Scotland, one that was miles from any other house, and she stayed there for six weeks all by herself. She could see the sheep on the hills across over there. She could see the dogs moving them from pen to pen, but she was too far to hear them. She said, I discovered that when one is absolutely quiet, 
no telephone, no radio, no television, quiet. I would get up in the morning and there would be no noise, maybe a bird outside the window, nothing. I would make my porridge, I would sit down to eat, and I really tasted porridge. When I would make a cup of soup for lunch and sit down in absolute silence, I tasted every spice I'd put in it, really tasted. I heard things I hadn't heard in 30 years. I saw things I hadn't seen in 30 years. I tasted things I hadn't tasted in all those years when there was so much noise around. I felt emotions I had not felt. You ever watch the Survivor series on television? I've always been amazed that when they're away from their families in some remote place, it's pouring down rain on them, they're sleeping on bamboo poles or something. A month later, on an episode, they'll let some member of the family come and spend 24 hours with somebody who's won one of the challenges, and everybody breaks down in tears. You ever seen it? The youngest and the oldest, the females and the males, they all tear up. It's tough being away from all the noise, being where it's quiet. The Bible says, be still and know that I am God. I thank God that you're enduring your afflictions, your persecutions. Number four. Number four and last. <clears throat> jump back up now if you're looking at your text there. Jump back up right, uh, right after the salutation and you find his saying, we must always give thanks to God. Well, Dr. F.F. F. Bruce, a longtime professor in England, Scotland, has written a commentary on this particular passage. And in his commentary he says, the prefaces for Anglican communion are based on a passage exactly like this. You remember the prefaces? This afternoon, late at 6 o'clock, when we have our All Saints service here, uh, we will use a more contemporary setting of Holy Communion. But when we have the, the service at 8.30 and 11, I've asked you all the years I've been here to let's use the old Anglican service. And you recall that when I get to the end of the sermon, immediately I say, the Lord be with you, and you say, and also with you. I say, lift up your hearts, and you say, we give thanks to the Lord. And then I say to you, it is very meet, right, and our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, Holy Father, Almighty, Everlasting God. Therefore, with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Holy, holy, holy. Meet, right, our bounden duty, that we say it. It's not enough to say, well, God knows we're thankful. God knows we're thankful. You need to say it. This morning at 8.30, one of my grandsons was sitting on the front row with his dad, Parker. 
And uh, Parker's very special to me, as the other five of our grandchildren are. But Parker was born in Birmingham, Alabama, when his dad had a, had a good job over there. And then he was offered a better job to come back to Tulsa. And they arrived back here when Par Parker was just six months old and lived in our house with us for, for some months while they were trying to sell their house in Birmingham and get into a house here in Tulsa and so on. So we had extra bonding time with Parker. And since that time when we eat together as family, often he wants to sit by me, even more when he was younger. We would go to the same buffet Sunday after Sunday after church, and he would sit by me, and by the time he could talk, he would elbow me and say, Granddad, said, yes, cheese grits. And I would go get him cheese grits, and he would sit there quietly eat while the conversation went on. Granddad, yes, pancake. And I would go get him a pancake and put a little butter, a little maple syrup on it, cut it up for him, and he'd sit and eat quietly. Granddad, yes, ice cream. His favorite Sunday lunch, cheese grits, pancake, and a dip of ice cream. He was good, ready to go from there. But when you go to a buffet, and now there are 12 of us, uh, everybody's hungry. We've been through the whole morning, Sunday school and church and so on. Everybody's hungry. So the first ones to the table are ready to start eating and somebody's waiting for an omelet to be made or something. And so sometimes we get the conversation going and forget to pray. And Parker was the one who would say to me, Granddad, we didn't pray. We didn't. And I told you a few weeks ago, now our little four-year-old Dylan is the one that several times she has said to me, Granddad, we didn't pray. We didn't. I'm sorry. Let's do it right now. It's important to say it. To say it. We thank you, God, for food and home and family and our church. We thank you for loving us, huh? I need to say it. You're familiar with the name Mitch Album? Mitch Album wrote Tuesdays with Maury. Maybe you read that or you saw the movie made from it. Mitch Album grew up in a Jewish family in New Jersey. It was bar mitzvahed, all the things that went along with growing up Jewish at a, at a conservative synagogue in New Jersey. Went on to Brandeis University, was graduated with honors and became a sports writer. Got a job with a big newspaper in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, years later, watching Nightline one night on television with Ted Koppel, he saw one of his old professors from Brandeis being interviewed who was dying with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. So Mitch called him the next day and said, I, I had no idea you were ill. Uh, the next time I'm in the area, may I come and see you? And Maury said, for any number of reasons, well, Tuesday would be best, Mitch, if you ever have a Tuesday. Okay. And so they started scheduling certain Tuesdays that Mitch would fly in and he would sit down and visit with this old professor. And he wrote a book out of that called Tuesdays with Maury. Well, a few years ago, he had given an address and the rabbi who had been his rabbi all of his growing up years, who had bar mitzvahed him and so on, walked up to him after he had given this address and said, Mitch, I want you to do the eulogy at my funeral. And Mitch said, I, I've never done that. I've, I've never, never done that. And the rabbi said, 
but you can do that. I want you to do that for me. And he said, are you ill? No, no. He said, I'm not ill, but I'm past 80. The time will come. I want you to do my eulogy. And so Mitch said to him, if you will give me opportunities to get to know you, I knew you when I was a boy. I don't know you now that I'm a man. The rabbi said, fine. So every time Mitch was in New York City, he would call the rabbi and ask, could I, you know, catch underground and come over and visit with you for a little while? Sure. The rabbi lived more than eight years after that, but they had a lot of visits, and now it's become a book called Have a Little Faith. Have a Little Faith. One of the stories in there, this dying rabbi, I mean, he's past 90 by this time, and in this visit he says to Mitch, Mitch, always say what you feel. It's important to say it. Do you understand me? Yes, sir. He said, no. Do you really understand me? He said, years ago we had a couple in our synagogue who'd been married all those years and suddenly she died. It came as a great shock to the family that it was so sudden. And he said, they went through the grieving, we got to the cemetery, and the husband was standing there beside me as the grave was being filled. And he was just sobbing uncontrollably. And he said quietly, I loved her. And the rabbi said, I nodded my head. He said, no, I really loved her. And the rabbi said, I nodded my head and put my arm around his shoulder and he said, and once I almost told her.